Keon Sports Podcast. Tonight, a very special guest, ECW legend Bill Alfonso. We talked to him about his time refereeing in WCW, WWF, and obviously his legendary journey in ECW. Sit tight, put your feet up, and grab something cold to drink. Up next, Bill Alfonso. Welcome to the Keon Sports Podcast. I am your host, Vince McKee. As you've seen over the last several weeks, we've had one big name after another from both WCW, WWF, the NWA, and now today, ECW. Very excited to have Bill Alfonso on the show to talk about his journey in the world of professional wrestling. Without any further ado, let's get him to the phone now. Here he is, Bill Alfonso. All right, on the hotline now with us is Bill Alfonso. Bill, welcome to the show. Happy to have you here today. Oh, I'm uh, thrilled to be on with you guys, especially you guys are based out of Cleveland. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Born and raised here in Northeast Ohio. Um, so we wanted to, wanted to start off talking about your years with championship wrestling from Florida and then a little bit into WCW for a short while. What were some of the most memorable matches you had uh, took part in as a ref um, in, in uh, championship wrestling from Florida and also WCW? God, there's so many because we were just loaded with so much talent, like Barry Windham and Jake the Snake, uh, Jake Roberts. Man, they used to have sensational matches. Uh, Dory Funk and Jack Briscoe, I caught them on their later. This is after Jack Briscoe dropped the belt to Harley Race or whoever. Uh, they were still having Dory Funk and Jake Briscoe having unbelievable matches. And then the showbiz aspect of it was uh, Dusty and whoever they put him against, Kevin Sullivan, they had a big run, was sensational. Uh, I'm talking about not in the ring. I mean, of course, in the ring, but more entertainment value. No, absolutely. Uh, yeah, there were just phenomenal matches, all the way from Scott McGee, uh, uh, to, you know, and then we had the guys come in, like Andre the Giant would come in for the week. He's a specialty item. And as I was the referee, it was my job to pick him up at the airport and take him around the loop for the week, and then he goes to another territory. So I was picking up Andre the Giant, Fabulous Mula, uh, the world champion, uh, the midgets, any specialty people that came in, it was my job to take care of them for that week, you know, because they would only come in for four or five days and go on to the next territory. But some of those matches were fun and pretty damn cool. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of stuff like uh, chain matches and Russian chain matches and all that. There's so many. There were, really, I can't think of a match that was like offbeat. Like that was, oh, that was a terrible match. Because the guys that weren't real talented, didn't last long at all. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. I mean, to, to even get to have that experience. Um, you know, and then transitioning then into your days with WWF, even though there were, they weren't very long, still you were there a couple of good years. You know, and a couple of things jumped out to me about your run there because you were there at a pretty pivotal time of transition. Um, you know, WWF, I was the first Monday Night Raw. I, did, I was on the first Monday Night Raw. Yeah, exactly. So you were the, you were right there. At the at the pinnacle of when they were switching the you know live television on Monday nights, going into uh, out of the Hogan era into the Bret Hart and everything else, very interesting yeah. stuff. 
So, you know, I wanted to ask you some questions here uh, about that because I find it, I find it to be extremely interesting. You know, number one, you worked with The Undertaker at WrestleMania 9. Could you just, yeah. you know, despite his lackluster opponent that night with Giant Gonzalez, could you tell, you know, just the crowd reaction and being around him that he had that gimmick was really something special that was going to last a long time? Yes, and nobody could predict how long things last, but uh, he had that special, he had that, you know, just like Bret Hart. He was a small guy, but he was a fantastic freaking worker. He had a big run. Um, uh, the Undertaker, I felt, was pretty cool because his gimmick was different. and uh, I didn't know what I was getting involved in. But I had just came from Florida Championship Wrestling, WCW, so I was around all that major talent. So it was just another guy who got over really big. But... Uh, it was remarkable. He, they, they, he was on top for a long time, and uh, it was just magic, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and again, you know, you did a hell of a job in that match. Obviously, you know, Giant Gonzalez wasn't very agile, so clearly Undertaker had to kind of carry it as, as well as you as a referee. You know, on that same card, because p- people talk a lot about WrestleMania 9 not being one of the better WrestleManias. To me, it was one of my favorite ones. I think there's a lot of gems, a lot of hidden gems on, you know, that era in general that go unmissed. Um, or I should say go missed. But one of them that same day was Shawn Michaels versus Tatanka. Earlier on that card, you know, you had Tatanka coming in undefeated for all that stretch of time with all the momentum, and yet they decided not to have Shawn Michaels drop the belt to him. What do you think the, the thought process behind that was with Vince McMahon? You know, did he kind of see Shawn Michaels as, as the face of the company moving forward eventually, or was it just a feeling of, you know, Chris Chavez, Tatanka, just wasn't ready to have uh, championship gold? Well, that, that may be the case, but um, Vince is loyal to his people. I'll give you an example how loyal he is to his people. So uh, you remember Nails, he wore the orange jumpsuit. Oh, yeah. Nails, okay? Yep. And uh, Big Boss Man, you know those two, right? Absolutely. So they they had a match on the pay-per-view, and we were in Green Bay, Wisconsin, doing Monday Night TV, and I seen uh, Nails pacing back and forth, and he was pissed off for some reason. So finally when Vince gets there, he goes right to Vince's office, the door's open, and he says, Prog, Vince, I was on the match with Big Boss Man, and he got a $5,000, I don't know the exact figures, but I'm just a guesstimate. He got a $5,000 payoff, and I got a $3,000 payoff, and we were in the same match. How do you justify that? I should have got five grand too. Nels is pissed. And, well, well, Nels, you're new here. Boss Man's been here four years, so he's got seniority, so that's how I paid him. You know, mm-hmm. so you you get what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and it's funny because we we asked Nails to come on the show. Everybody that we've had on the show has been great, he, and he has not agreed to come on. So, yeah, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so that's a thing. Maybe Tatanka wasn't ready. Maybe he's been there two years, and Vince tested. It takes a year to get over. Vince always told me, he said, Fonzie, it takes a year for these guys to get over. I'm investing a lot of time and money, and, you know, in that year, we're going to know relatively if it's going to work or not. So, you know, and then uh, your attitude, you got to have a freaking good attitude because there's, look, there's only 200 jobs available in WWF. Right. And there's 800 wrestlers 
that can fill those jobs. So it's a fighting, you know, if you can't fill it, there's another 600 guys who are trying to get in that can work as good or better than you. So you better fucking carry your ass pleasantly and diplomatically and professionally because there's no time for bullshit. I mean, when we travel, you gotta dress nice, you gotta look good, especially me as a referee. I'll give you an example. They meet Hulk Hogan and Sting walking to the Marriott in downtown New York, the city. Mm-hmm. When we walk in, oh, Hogan, oh, we've been expecting you right away service like at the drop of the hat. I mean, instant first-class service. Now, if I walked in there by myself without the two big blonde guys, without Sting, and, and I'm dressed in a reasonably nice, polo shirt and a pair of jeans and a pair of Nikes and I walk in uh, yes I have a reservation uh, William Alfonso oh we'll be right with you give me a few minutes you know what I mean yep. but if I walk in by myself and I get a beautiful fucking suit now Vince is paying me six figures so I can afford to dress nice so if I walk in there with a beautiful suit uh, some Mariner Rolex and Louis Vuitton luggage when I walk through the, up to that desk at the Marriott uh, can we help you, uh, William Alfonso? Oh, Mr. Alfonso, we've been waiting for you. They'll kiss my ass because appearance is everything. So Vince drove that into me, and I've been dressing nice. I want to look better than the fucking fans. I'm a referee. I can't walk in with a T-shirt and jeans and look like everybody else. If they don't know who I am, and I walk in, I'm dressed five-star, they're going to say, damn, that's somebody. Who the fuck is that? He looks so good. He can't be one of us. So, you know... I don't know how we added the subject, but go ahead. No, yeah, that's great. And then that makes a world of sense. You know, a lot of guys yeah, live the yeah. gimmick. You know, Million Dollar Man riding around the limousines and everything he had to do. So it makes a ton of sense. I wanted to ask. One more. Let me finish that up. So my friends that I grew up with in Tampa, born and raised in Tampa. So all my friends, uh, the plumber was a doctor, was a pilot and so on. They said, man, what a fucking easy job you got, Alfonso. You're on Monday night TV, but they don't know that we travel seven to ten days a week at home three. They don't know I leave Tampa, fly to New York, do a Monday Night Raw. Tuesday, go to Poughkeepsie, do a Monday Night Raw, because back then we used to tape. Yep. We one live show, two two shows in a can, Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. Those would be for the following two weeks. So they don't know that you know, I'm three days in New York, and then fly from after the, uh, Thursday morning, fly to San Francisco, do San Francisco, fly to Honolulu, not even stay overnight in Honolulu, six hours, do a show, catch a red eye to San Francisco, do a show there, then come home. So that's a pretty tough schedule. So you better have you sit together, know how to fly, know how to present yourself, and know how to travel, and know how to eat, know how to make a reservation for a car. You know, all that figures in. If you can't do that, you're history because no time. There's, remember, there's 800 wrestlers that can do it and only 300 jobs. Yeah, I mean, that's math you can't fight for sure. You know, and let me ask you this. You talk about a year to get over with WWF and, you know, things of that nature. Um, you know, McMahon trusting different people. You know, that that same WrestleMania we talked about with Tatanka and Sean, you know, had Bret Hart and Yokozuna on the card to main event it. And then the main title switch ends up going from Yokozuna over Bret Hart to Hawk Hogan out of nowhere. You know, if you could kind of talk about the insides of things sometimes, 
did you guys as a crew, everybody in the company know that day what was going to happen with Yokozuna beating Bret Hart and then Hogan? Or were you guys all sitting there shocked, like, what the hell's going on? No, we weren't shocked, but that's the office decision. There's a committee. There's agents, bookers, and then Vince. He oversees everything. Uh, I'll tell you how Vince wants to know everything in a second. But, uh, no, we weren't shocked at all because Hogan was old faithful. You know, we could always resort to Hogan. So if, if, if I'm at a party with my daughter who's 38 years old, their house for parties, all millennials and stuff. And they say, oh, hey, uh, Alfonso, how are you? Hey, well, what did you do for a living? And I say, sports entertainment. And they say, what? Sports entertainment? And all they got to say is one word, and they know. I say, oh, you know, Hulk Hogan. Okay, so I'm affiliated with that. But if I say any other name, if I say Bret Hart or Harley Race or uh, Dick Slater or Bobo Brazil, they don't know those names, these millennials, or if they if they if they're not in tune with wrestling. But if I say Hulk Hogan, everybody uses that name. So I refer to him as the guy. Get me out of you know, that explain you know the wrestling and this and that. I just say Hulk Hogan and they know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean I just you know, kinda the question was too so we obviously you weren't surprised but did you guys did the people know or just the people in the match know that that was going to happen i think the people in the match knew what, what was going to happen because we're so every all the other matches are so interested in their match to get in their shit together for their performance you know we don't want to know who, what's doing who's doing what but you know nobody's trying to hide it but uh it was floating around the dressing room that what were they going to do after you know uh, hour before the match, you know? Wow, okay. But, uh... Yeah, interesting, interesting. You know, one last question about the WWF, and then we'll transition to ECW for you here. Um, you know, one big guy that came in from WCW was Lex Luger. They made a big do, you know, to do with, with uh, Hogan leaving after the King of the Ring, putting this Lex Express together, putting all this momentum behind Lex Luger. Then they never actually put the title on him. Why do you why do you feel Vince decided not to go with Lex Luger as the new face of the company after Hogan departed? Because he wasn't that talented in the ring. He had the look, he had the body, he could talk a little bit, but he didn't have the worth work ethic in the ring. Wasn't a Barry Windham, wasn't a Jake Roberts, wasn't a precision machine. He had to work hard. If you watch his matches, he's got to work hard, extra hard to give a good performance because he just wasn't a natural. Even though he was an athletic guy, played football and, you know, sports orientated, had a fucking beautiful body, good looking kid, but he just didn't have that natural ability in the ring. That's why I think. I could be wrong, but uh, I think I'm pretty on point there. No doubt about it. The talent. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, completely, complete sense. So when Paul Heyman first approached you to come work for ECW, did you believe it was going to be strictly as a referee, or was the plan laid out from day one for you to eventually manage? No, not at all. The Paul Heyman and I had been good friends for years. I was in Florida in the '80s, and Paul Heyman came down. He's trying to break into business in the '80s. He's a photographer, he's this, he's actually trying to get his foot in the door. He loves the business like I do. So I was assistant booker 
the time he was in Florida, he came down with a guy named Tombstone. You probably don't recognize the name because he was in the business shortly, good body. He came down with a guy named Tombstone. They were friends. And he spent the summer here. And Tombstone got his notice to leave. You know, he's going to a different territory. And Paul Heyman comes up to me and says, Hey, Fonzie, you know I'm Tombstone's buddy. And he got his notice. He's going to Texas to wrestle for the Von Erics. And he's got, you know, he leaves in two weeks. Do you think there's any way possible that I can go to the ring with him and be his manager? I said, well, not a bad idea, Paulie. You've been a great guy all summer long here. Like a wonderful kid. But, you know, you got a pair of jeans on. You got an old pair of Converse and a holy fucking T-shirt. I didn't know his parents were wealthy and the lawyers lived in Scarsdale and rich. I said, hey, do you have money to get a suit? You know, you got to look good. He's, oh, yeah, I'll get it. Boom. So he came out with Tombstone. Uh, and Tombstone was doing jobs with Scott Hall for those two weeks. So when he was leaving, you do jobs, one, two, three, you know. Sure. And, and then at the end of the one, two, three, Scott Hall would grab Paul Heyman and press slam him and they'd get a big pop. So Paul Heyman never forgot that, that I was good to him. You know, when he came up to me and said, hey, is there any chance I can go to the ring and this and that? And I waited out and said, okay, that's okay. You know, they're going to get beat and then Scott Hall press slams and the people get a little pop. Yeah, that's fine. But he never forgot that. Then he left the territory. I didn't see him for years, and then we went to AWA for Burn Ganya, mm-hmm. and became a big star at WCW. And I was with him in WCW a little bit. So I'm bouncing around from uh, promotion to promotion, but only big promotions for Tips of Wrestling, WCW, WWF, Japan. I've been to Japan 13 times. Um, and so I leave WWF because. And, I, and after WrestleMania, sometime before WrestleMania 10, business was down. You know, wrestling business goes oh, yeah. down. We were selling out for weeks and weeks everywhere we went. The business dropped off 30% or whatever. You know, the houses were 70% capacity or whatever. So Vince wanted to cut back because they weren't doing big business. So I was one of the last referees that they hired. And so Vince, a guy named Steve Carroll, he was kind of in charge of the ring and he was a photographer and he was in charge of booking the referees and all that. He came up to me at a Monday Night Raw and was kind of rude. And I have been working for this guy for two years already. And he was kind of rude. He says, well, Fonzie, they're cutting back and we decided you finish up next week. Now that isn't a fucking very diplomatic decision tell me I'm fired, you know what I mean? Yeah. You be diplomatic. So I was, my feelings got hurt, I didn't understand, I said, fuck. You know, he didn't explain to me, the economy was down, and, and uh, revenue was down. He didn't explain any of that to me, he just said, hey, you're finishing up next week, pretty blunt about it. And it seemed like he was enjoying telling me this. <laughs> so, so, I got a little frazzled. So Vince comes, I see Vince, I go right up to Vince. I said, Vince, I understand, you know, what happened, but he wasn't very diplomatic. He treated me like shit, and I told him what I just told you. He said, what? And Vince loved me. For some reason, Vince loved me because I was athletic. I was taking these fucking crazy bumps. An example was Tatanka and Bam Bam Bigelow were going to shoot an angle and start wrestling together. So they were going to shoot a little angle in the dressing room, 
and then they they lock up in the dressing room. We got the camera there. We're filming it, so we can show it later. And we're gonna pull them apart before they get too much into it. Just the beginning of an angle. So uh, Vince is there watching the thing getting prepped up and getting ready to get uh, shot. You know, and I told Bam Bam, I said, Bam Bam. They're good. Once you once you grab to talking, you guys lock up. They're going to send five referees down, and I said I'm the smallest one. I'm a fucking 165 pounds. If I touch you, you grab me by the pants and neck. You see that trash can's about 30 feet away. Shoot me into that trash can like a bullet hmm. because there's no way I should be able to pull you off of fucking Tatanka. Yeah. This doesn't make sense. He's okay, Fonzie. You okay with us? Yeah. So I didn't tell Vince or nothing. Vince didn't tell me to do that. So they did a boom. They locked up and they were fighting each other. Here comes the refs. One ref, El Hebner, Dave Hebner, pushing them away. Uh, I come in. I grab Bam Bam. He grabs me and shoots me and I fly like a fucking bullet. 30 feet. I hit the trash can. Not a scratch on me. Thank God I didn't get hurt. But it looks sensational, right? And after a cut, after the, you know, the camera went dark, Vince comes up to me and says, who told you to do that? Nobody just said it makes sense, Vince. He said, oh, Fonzie, I love it. Great job. Good bump. Vince, because I did shit like that without being told. That made sense, you know? Sure. So anyway, uh, what were we talking about before that? Uh, no, I mean, just that, that the transition to ECW and if you were going to be a manager all along. Or... Okay, 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 okay. So, so Vince loved me. So when I complained to Vince about the way I got my notice, he said, Fonzie, that's terrible. I'll handle this. So uh, the next week, Vince called me to his office, gave me a $25,000 severance check. He said, Fonzie, anytime we run to Florida, we're going to use you. And as soon as business picks back up, we're going to call you up. You'll be the first one on the list. So that made me feel really fucking good. Um, so anyway, I go home. I haven't been off for 20 years. I've been full-time job with Florida Championship Wrestling, WCW, WWF, Japan. This is my first time off, so I'm off about two weeks. I'm still on Monday Night Raw because they taped. Yeah. They taped, they taped one live show and they taped two in the can. So I'm still, I'm, so Paul Heyman calls me. I get a phone call. I haven't heard from Paul in a couple of years. But you know what? Uh... When you see somebody you haven't seen in years, it's just like it was yesterday. You know what I mean? Yep. We're really good friends. So he said, hey, Fonzie. Hey, Paul Heyman, what are you doing, brother? We bullshitted for a minute. He says, look, I got this company in Philadelphia called ECW. I said, what the fuck is an ECW? <laughs> Remember, I'm mainstream. Yeah. Florida Championship Wrestling, WCW, Ted Turner, Vince McMahon, Japan, 65,000 people sold. I was crazy. Uh he says, I got this idea. You just, you're still on TV. I want one more week of TV. He says, everybody, all these people are smart marks. And, I, and and this is a different type of company we're trying to start. I want to bring you in to be anti-violent. Because Vince wants the doctor. Vince wants the doctor's wife. And Vince wants the doctor's two kids at ringside. Not uh, 30-year-old males. And you know what I mean? Seventy percent male, fucking thirty year old. So he says, "I want you to be anti ECW. Stop the violence. Try to turn it into the you know family entertainment like Vince." And I did that the first couple of nights. I was uh, went up there, 
And the people bought it. They hated me because I would stop their party. Like a tight, they had me referee a Taipei death match. The fans in ECW were waiting three months for this Taipei death match. It was Axel and Ian Rod against each other, where they taped their hands up with a white tape. They dipped their hands in glue, then they dipped their hands in broken glass, and had was a Taipei death match. So now these people know that they're going to get blood and guts, and my God, and it's going to be terrible with the entertainment hardcore. So, to one minute into the match, Axel Rodney is Ian, and Ian gets a little trickle of blood, so small it looks like a fucking Girl Scout cut. And I stopped the match. I said, due to the lack of vision and Axel Rodney's eye, I'm stopping the match. The people wanted to fucking hang me. I had to have a police escort out of the building that night because I anti-violence. So that carried on. I was originally supposed to come in for four weeks do stuff like that. 911 was one of the big stars. At the end of the four weeks, it was going to choke slam me. And then ECW, go, and then I'm out of the picture. I go home. And then ECW continues on their path of rage. But after he choke slam me, I still had heat. Paul Amos kept me for another week. Then Taz got hurt. For real. Or his neck was out six, eight weeks or whatever. And when he came back, his gimmick was, man, fuck ECW. They did call me one time and check on me. I broke, broke, almost broke my neck. Paul Heyman never called me. Of course, he called him every day, but this is for TV. Uh, Paul Heyman never called me. They didn't send me no money. I was fucking starving. You know who called me every day? Fonzie. Bill Alfonso called me every day. He sent me money. That's my boy. I came out there. They put us together, and I was there five years. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt about it. And you know, that initial Team Taz thing was excellent. You know, before the switch at, at Barely Legal in April ninety seven, we'll get to that in a second. But, you know, when you guys were invading Raw a couple times there, everything else, it was, you know, Bill Alfonso and Team Taz. How come you think the fans took to that that early Taz angle so well? Because that was really one of the most popular things, not only in ECW, but the entire wrestling world at the time. Because we were something different. Who knew? Who knew there was a market? Even though Taz wasn't as hardcore with the blood and you know, but he did the tables. He was really badass. Yes, you know Taz had like seven gimmicks before he became Taz. Never got over. He was yep. Tasmania. He was Monkey Boy. He was Eight Boy. Whatever the fuck he was, never got over until they put him and I together, and he became Taz. And why he got over, I think. And why I got over, because I am the personality you see in the ring as Bill Alfonso Fonzie blows the whistle and hyper and jumping around. That's kind of me, ordinary. And on TV, I just hype it up about 30%. So that's really me, who you see. And Taz played his true self. He's kind of a dick. He's kind of a grumpy, you know, like he is on TV. Yep. And, and uh, so that gimmick got over. I think if you're Portray yourself and not try to portray something you're not. It comes through. People could read that. So people could read that Taz was a real fucking shoot. And I think people liked it. And who knew there was a market for the blood and guts? Who knew that there was a market for the tables and all the juice and the fucking broads getting naked and all kind of shit? Who knew that? Fucking we, that company grew 
in five years that I was there, we did, you know, 22 pay-per-views. Any indie companies that you know of that lasted as long as ECW that was successful, uh, and did all the pay-per-views and stuff? No. Hell no. ECW was the first. And they had a market for it. But our problem with ECW was, uh, these numbers aren't accurate. I'm going to just give you an example. ECW made $13 million in 1997. But we spent fourteen five to put the shows on. So we're losing money. You know, but we were still existing. We were borrowing money from Peter and Paul to pay Mary and all that shit. Uh, no corporate sponsors. We were struggling. Vince gave us a million dollars to keep going because we were successful. And uh, Vince liked us. You know, really liked us was Shane McMahon, like the hardcore entertainment. Um, Vince didn't humble uh, get uh, shine up to it till later and he really never got it because once he bought the company out after he gave us a million dollars and we carried out a couple more years um, and then when he bought it he watered it down and tried to make it like his other stuff ECW that's why you don't see any ECW stuff on TV yeah and you know one of the unique things too was the way ECW was able to take characters that never really got over in WCW or WWF and completely changed them. One of those guys, you know, uh, Scott Fleming or um, Scotty Flamingo, Raven, you know, uh, Johnny Polo. Yeah. I mean, just amazing what he was able to do. And we'll, hopefully we can get him on the show. We would love to talk to Raven. Um, you know, what was so special about him that once they let this guy do his own thing in ECW, took off like a rocket. Raven was Raven. He wasn't Johnny Polo. He wasn't all that stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. He was Raven. That's his gimmick. That's how he is in real life, kind of. You know what I mean? He's got a high IQ. Raven is really smart. High IQ. Comes from a wealthy family. But that's his fucking gimmick. And the people bought it because it's true. You know, people can read through that bullshit. Scotty Flamingo is just another character. Take a bump on the hip toss, drop down, leapfrog. Raven was Raven, brother. That's why he got over. Name like Taz. What was it like working with Sabu and RVD? It seemed like you guys were having a ton of fun. Incredible. Let me tell you about how when I first walked in my first night in ECW, they would go to Sabu. Because this is pretty interesting. I think you'll find it pretty cool. So I get the phone call from Paul Heyman. I told you about it. Hey, Ponzi, you want to bring in for four weeks? Choke slam you and you're done. So I get my plan, my flight information. I fly up on a Friday. I remember, I just came from WWF. And I just came from WCW, Japan, and so on. And was making money and had really nice clothes. Like I told you, at Marriott, I had a fucking $1,000 suit. Samaritan a Rolex, Louis Vuitton luggage. My hair is fucking perfect, mustache shaved, beautiful. So I walk into the dressing room in Philadelphia at ECW. I walk in, there's Sandman. There's Taz, there's Tommy Dreamer, there's Mikey Whiprack, there's all the ECW guys. I didn't know one fucking guy there. Huh. And I've been in the business 20 years. Who the fuck is Sandman? Who the fuck is Taz? Who the fuck is Tommy Dreamer? I didn't know any of these guys. Yo, do me, of course. Hey, Alfonso, how you doing? Before pull me over. But, but what I'm saying is Paulie created all them fucking stars. I'm fucking uh, too much. Created all those stars. Uh, out of not nobody's but no names you know 
was sensational. But back to RVD and Sabu, are you kidding me? No, I think when you say ECW, um, the one name that represents ECW the best is Sabu. Nobody's like Sabu. Van Damme is super talented and a badass, and he's the second thing you come with uh, um, ECW. But man, what a treat! Made my job so easy, and I was on top. You know, because they were all main event guys. We held the belt together. Being Van Damme, two years with the television title, several world titles with those guys, the tag belts and fuck the world belt. I just, you know, the fuck the world belt that Taz made. You know the story behind that. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, he couldn't get a title shot. He said, fuck you, I'll make my own belt, fuck the world. Uh, so he just gave it away at AEW. Yeah, last week. Right? Mm-hmm. So I got a picture. I just posted on my social media. Which I've, Van Damme's got a million people on the social media. I got like 15,000. I'm trying, you know what I mean? So I posted a fucking a picture of me holding, I tweeted it out and put an Instagram of me holding that belt. And I put a little caption, hey, daddy, how can you give this belt away when half of it belongs to me? You know how many, you know how many likes I got on that? Uh, uh, like 3,000 likes in two days. That's incredible. Because of the belt. Because I picked the right time. I wouldn't put that picture with me holding that belt. It would have meant nothing three weeks ago. But Taz just gave it away on national TV to some fucking struck badass guy. And then I posted it with a little caption that didn't hurt anybody. It was an anti-Taz. It was just, you know what I mean? It was just making light of the situation. And all those posts. So people remember that damn ECW. When I do conventions, and I did maybe 10 of them last year, and indie shows all over the country, and AIW, and stuff like that, they always, always talk about some of the real smart marks want to hear about Florida Championship Wrestling, Little WCW, Little WWF, but all the questions stem from ECW. All of them. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's something you know the fans really took to. I knew I did as well at the time. I was a teenager, so for me, it was right in that hot spot. You know, how much of a morale boost was it? You, you guys had worked so hard to get there, and then in 1997, April of 1997, the first pay-per-view in company history barely legal how big of a deal was that man because as a fan as an ecw fan that was huge for the fans we all felt so proud to reach that point because it hadn't really been done if it has been done maybe smoky mountain might have did it with jim Cornette back in the day but the different animal different ball game nothing like us we all felt like that's why we were successful because everybody was busting their ass because nobody was making money i mean uh the top guys were making a little bit of money. And that myth about those bad checks and all that bullshit, Paulie, bouncing bad checks, that's a myth because I was there five years, never got one bad check. I, in five years, I worked 365 days in five years and made $250,000 in 365 days. But in a five-year period, that's twice the amount of money I made working with Vince 300 and some days in the year crazy uh, but we were all so proud to be uh, to have that first pay-per-view and once it was successful we got good ratings the buy rate was decent you know we were uh the, the show was good we got all good reviews everybody was so happy and then we were moving on you can't uh 
you can't dwell on something for long. You got to keep going to the next step. So we were looking at it for pay-per-view number two, then pay-per-view number three. 22 pay-per-views later, I was on every one of them except for the last one was sensational. We fucking thought we were, we all owned that company. We all were invested. We all wanted to do good. We all would fucking cut our heads off. We all go through tables. It was, it was the most, it was the best time in my career. I had the best time there, and I think, uh, yeah, that was my favorite place. Even though I made more money WWF, of course, made more money working for Ted Turner. I made great money in the eighties uh, in Florida wrestling. And when I went to Japan, I made good money. But uh, ECW was a challenge. Bunch of young guys working with Paul Heyman, who was brilliant, by the way. Uh, was just a fucking thing. It was fucking fun and beautiful. I enjoyed myself. If I didn't go to ECW, I wouldn't be talking to you today. Oh, I agree completely on that. Um, you know, question two, was there, you know, and, and again, you could, I'm not asking you to pin anybody out, but was there people there that you feel like, you know, had a lot of talent, but struggled with like personal demons whether it was you know drugs or alcohol or uh you know yes of course there is but that's in every profession basketball doctor's office lawyer's office football yeah that was a small part maybe a little more professional wrestling because until the drug test became until vince had the wellness program developed and all that you know we're self-employed so, you know, we're our own bosses. So, yeah, a lot of guys, have, well, what do you do? You're on the road seven days a week. Oh, not, not so much in ECW. We just work Friday and Saturdays. Uh, so uh, you do the show. After the show, you go to the hotel where we're all at. And a lot of the marks come in. Everybody's drinking and buying you drinks. And some guy walks up to you with a bag of blow and says, here, you, you fucking buzzed up. You start doing coke. Yeah, it's very easy to fall into that syndrome. Yeah, that hindered a lot of guys' careers, fucking too much drugs and alcohol. And we had no wellness program in ECW. But, tell you this, nobody died in the time ECW started when I was there from 95 till it finished. Nobody died, they all died after. Brian Pillman came through, left, died. Louis Piccoli came through, he left, and he died. So nobody died in ECW. They died working for Vince or somebody else. Nobody we had no fatalities in ECW. Were you there the uh, the night Kimono Wanalea danced on top of the ECW arena? And if so, you know how cool was that? Because that was pretty cool as a fan. Yeah, because something happened with the ring, the light. Something happened. The whole fucking uh, show got shut down. Fucking the people were getting restless, and somebody's bright ideal. I don't know if it's Paul Heyman or whoever fucking came up with it. And it was over. Look, we're talking about it still. And she was fucking had that smoking little body. Beautiful. That was ECW at its finest. Yeah. He could have done that. He might have. But, you know, that was more of ECW uh, pop, not pop culture. Like, uh, you know what I'm trying to say. We were fucking underground, black market, fucking... Uh, Hardcore entertainment, sex, violence, it fit right in. Fit right in, it was great. And nice to look at, too. Yeah. What a sweetheart, too. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, women like 
Francine and Beulah, you know, two, uh, those are just two. Francine and Beulah McGillicuddy are widely regarded as two of the sexiest women in wrestling history. Why do you feel they never caught on with WCW or WWE after that? And we're just kind of niche for ECW because those were two very talented people. Well, I'm going to say this again. There's only 300 jobs and 800 wrestlers. Same with the girls. Less. There's only 30 jobs and 245 girls that can do that job. So, right place at the right time. It helps. Just bad timing. That's why they didn't go. Francine's so fucking popular. She's got, she does a lot of, uh, social media stuff and makes a living and doing stuff like that. You know, there's all kinds of stuff. Very, just very relevant today, like I am. I'm relevant because I'm on social media and I'm working these indie shows and I've got to pass BCW. So when I go to these uh, conventions and stuff, not now because of the pandemic, 19, but before the pandemic, when I go to the conventions, I'm not saying I outsell Thing, giving pictures away and you know saying I'm pretty fucking relevant when there's 3,000 people at the convention and most of them stop by my booth and ask me about the Beulah Fonzie match or he said ask me something or they'll usually buy something if not I'll usually give away fucking half my merchandise because pictures are a dollar to fucking make if I sign a picture and give it to a kid uh, they don't forget it. It cost me a dollar. It's good. But I, I'm a people person. I like people. So I'm very well liked by the fans for some reason because I communicate with them and bullshit with them. And the boys love me. So why I think that Beulah and Francine didn't get a break? Because there was no opportunity. Because there was already 30 girls there. And then, you know what I mean? There's only... You know, there's a hundred girls, but there's only 15 jobs. Even though they were successful, what are you going to do? Take Sunny off? Sunny was fucking beautiful. She was good with that microphone. Uh, but what are you going to do? Grab Sunny off? She's a big star already. They got her, you know, uh, a year under their belt. She's getting over. They can't just yank her off for Francine. But there was no availability for her for a position for those girls. No, I mean, that makes sense. I could be wrong, but. Because they did nothing wrong. They weren't bad people. They were fucking sensational people. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, too. So, you, earlier in the interview, you described, you know, ECW as a family. Everybody's pushing for each other and helping each other out. So, despite the success of all that, you know, was it surprising? Or why do you feel uh, the Dully Boys left, Taz, Raven, and Shane Douglas, and even the Sandman? I mean, that, that's a that's really a, a big chunk of the company. That, that's an easy answer. And we carried on. And we did, we carried on. We did well without them. One guy left, we carried on. I mean, they're irreplaceable to a certain extent, but, you know, we did okay without everybody. I'll tell you why they went, is because of fucking income. Now, if you're making uh, $50,000 a year doing your podcast, and Ted Turner calls you, and says, hey, look, I'm going to start a podcast. I've been listening to your podcast. You're reasonably fucking well. Just imagine what you can do working for me. Unlimited uh, scientific state-of-the-art equipment. And I'm going to pay you $300,000 a year. Would you be interested? You fucking there. How long you got to think about that? Yeah. How long? Yeah. You're going to say, yes, I'll take that job. That's the same format, same formula that I think why all the guys left. 
They were making big money. Sabu and I were next to go. I was going to make $750,000 in three years uh, if we would have signed with WCW, but we got blocked and we didn't get to go and the company folded shortly after that. But but all those guys were making big money. Sandman was, you know, did a $300,000 a year, you know, first year, second year, 400, the third year, 500, whatever. Making big fucking money, you can't say no. Even though your heart's in ECW, you know you want to live well. You can't buy a house making 70 grand a year. No, I hear you. So I got three questions left for you. Um, this has been an excellent interview. Thank you so much. You know, like you said, you're going to be honest about stuff. I'm flattered to be on your show. Thank yeah. you. Hey, we're flattered to have you. Really, really, really I, I am. It's very humble. I'm very humble. And uh, it's pretty cool when somebody calls and talks to my social media director, who's my niece, by the way, Angelica Alfonso is just sweetheart. Um, it's very cool still, you know, all these years later, to be doing promos and stuff like this is really fun for me. But, you know, it's easy for me because all they had to do is tell the truth. I can't make shit up because you can't lie to the people, especially the wrestling fans who are smart marks, because they can investigate it or whatever. So I found the best, the best serum, the best way for me to express myself is to tell the story exactly like it happened. And that's interesting because they don't see what I tell you guys on TV. This is all backstage stuff. And I'm not knocking nobody. I'm not talking bad about nobody. You know what I mean? So people feel that so it works. But hey, thanks again. Oh, yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you. So three three questions left. Um, this next one to me is very easy, to be honest with you. I think it's 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 common sense. Why do you feel that the, the new, as they called it, the new ECW failed so badly uh, back in 2006 and seven, they tried to run this thing, you know, with WWE, um, and it, it, was, it was so watered down. I mean, why do you feel that the WWE took this great product and just didn't do what they were supposed to do with it? I, I don't know. It was just too watered down. It was just too watered down. I don't think Vince knew what he had. I don't think Vince knew he could create, because we created a new market for wrestling. Because uh, the people were burned out. Some of the people... Like the hardcore wrestling fans were getting burned out on Vince's shows, getting burned out on WCW. They wanted something new. So when we came around and got successful and started going through tables and hardcore and all that, and then uh, we started being successful. And then when Vince bought it out, uh, it just wasn't the same. And it felt it was just like any other ordinary family entertainment wrestling. A little hardcore, but nothing like they were used to. That's why I watered out. If Vince did that on purpose, I don't know. Vince, Vince don't give a fuck about money. I'll give an example. Uh, you know, remember the coach on Steve Austin when he drove those big four-wheel trucks, those giant monster trucks, and he sure. would do shit like run over people's cars and shit. Yeah. So they were gonna do a thing. He had a coach so had a big angle with I forgot who it was. Just name one guy, whoever it was. Say Razor Ramon, I don't know. So they're going to do a skit backstage where they get into a fight. Steve Austin jumps in his truck and runs over uh, Razor Ramon's Cadillac. So at the beginning, of the, you know, when we do Monday Night Raw, Vince wants to stay at 1 o'clock. Not 2 o'clock, 1 o'clock. Don't be fucking late. 
because there's 80 guys that want to take your job. If you're late 10 times in a month, you're fucking history. I was, I would rather be two hours early than five minutes late yeah. and dress nice. But anyway, so he sends one of the agents, Dave Hebner or whoever it was, said, hey, go buy a brand new Cadillac. We're going to run it over. Jeez. You can't run. So Dave Hebner, whoever the agent was, goes and buys, goes to the car dealership, Caddy Place. Yeah, I need a new Cadillac. We're going to run it over. The guy says, what? Yeah. He says, well, I got this 2020, I mean, this brand new Cadillac, but it was drove by the owner of the company and it's only got a thousand miles on it. I'll give it to you for $8,000 less. He said, I'll take it. So the, the agent comes back with a brand new Cadillac. He says, Vince, I got the Cadillac. Uh, and I got a deal on it because it's got 3,000 miles. Vince said, I said, go buy me a brand new one. Take it back and give me a brand new one. <laughs> what, that, don't make, that don't make no sense. But that's what kind of... Vince would rather spend $10,000 a day on a lawyer's fee than lose a fucking $100,000 case. You know what I mean? Yep. Vince don't give a fuck about money. So he didn't give a fuck about ECW making it or not, I think. You know, maybe it was a tax writer. Who knows? Well, I don't have the right answer for that, but it, it was watered down. It was a shit, and it wasn't successful. That's the bottom line. You know, you mentioned Hebner there, too. Uh, second to last question for you. Put yourself in Earl Hebner's shoes in 1997, the Montreal Screwjob. If you were the referee in that match between Brett and Sean, the infamous Montreal Screwjob, would you have gone through and, and did what you were told? I would have told me what the office told me. Who the fuck is Bret Hart anyway? This is one of the boys. He didn't want to do the job. That's his problem. Vince McMahon's paying me $110,000 a year as a referee. Yes, sir. You want me to fuck him? No, no, I would feel terrible. I don't want to fuck nobody, but, you know, I'm doing what the office says. You know what I mean? Yep. I'll give an example of something that happened. Uh, similar to that, but not the same caliber. I was doing a match in Florida Championship Wrestling, and... I think it was like Barry Windham fighting somebody. And uh, so anyway, the it was for the belt. And say the baby face, uh, the heel, cover, the, the baby face gets like knocked out or gets, gets a stunner. And he's a little woozy. And the heel covers him. And I got one, two, and he kicks out, right? But he, when I was counting one, too, as I was going to hit three, I see that he wasn't going to kick out. I said, fuck, what did I do? I had a fake heart attack. So I never hit three. Never hit three. One, two, oh, I grabbed my chest, and I fell over and did a little fucking shuffle, you know what I mean? So the belt didn't change hands. You know what I mean? You got to be on your feet. So that's what happened to me. But I would do whatever my office tells me to. Probably not to hurt the guys and Bret Hart because it's a big thing and he felt bad and all that shit, but fuck, you know, it's not Hebner's fault. Yeah, you need your job. Yeah, yeah. you got a family to feed and everything else. I would have done exactly what happened. That fucking man would have counted one, two, three. <laughs> yeah. Last question for you. Um, and thanks again. AEW, we, you mentioned a little bit earlier with, with Taz and the belt. Um, do you think AEW could be a serious competitor? No one's ever going to put the WWE out of business. That will never happen. But do you do you think AEW could at least you know be a, a strong competitor for them if they ever switch to Monday nights? I don't know about a strong competitor, competitor, but they'll provide a lot of jobs for the boys, which is fucking fantastic. 
they'll provide some entertainment. People are so used to WWF. Anything else seems secondary now, especially now, to, you know, they've been the only ball game in town for years. So people are loyal. Uh, and they're used to Vince's uh, formats and his style. But, you know, I hope so, because I want them to be around, because they're creating a lot of jobs for the guys. And one day they might call me, because I'm good friends with uh, Dusty Rhodes, friends with him until he passed. And his two kids are up there running the show. So they might give me a call. So I hope they're successful. Uh, and I think they'd be okay because they got pretty good stuff. They're just, they, but they seem secondary. They seem secondary to Vince for some reason. You know, maybe it's in my mind. I'm not thinking right, but that's a good question, brother. Uh, they got a chance. They got a chance. I don't know if they could be neck and neck with them like like WCW was, where they were having those Monday Night War wars and all that. Uh, I don't think they can be as big. Um, like the machine, I don't think so. Well, I may be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. Well, we appreciate you taking the time today to speak with us. Thank you again. Before we let hey, you off the phone. Hey, hey, Daddy. Don't wrap me up yet because I haven't told you anything about Barry Wyndham getting shot an hour before he had to wrestle Harley Race for 60 minutes. I didn't tell you about Roddy Piper shooting an alligator in the, Ever- in the Everglades. I didn't tell you about the near airplane crash where everybody was crying fucking yelling with superstar Billy Graham but I got a lot of good stories for you oh fire away you know, you no go right ahead I'd love to hear that Roddy Piper alligator story for sure I'll, I'm gonna save it for part two and we'll work a deal out but I'll tell you the Piper story quick so Piper's a Canadian Canada he's never been to Florida he's a big star GPS uh, so they fly him down for the week. He's going to work West Palm Beach, Monday, Tampa, Tuesday, Wednesday, Miami, Thursday, Jacksonville, Friday, a spot show, and then go back to TBS. So, of course, remember I told you when they brought a specialty item in, the referee, me, would pick uh, Andre up, take him for the week, Fabulous Mula, the midgets, the world champion, any specialty guy who came in. So, Piper jumps in with me, Kevin Sullivan, and my name, Frank. Uh, Dusik. You won't know that name, but his father, his family was famous Dusik brothers from the 50s and 60s, and he was a wrestler back in the day, so this was in the 80s. So we're driving from Tampa to Miami, we gotta go through Ever, Ever, uh, Alligator Alley, the Everglades. So now, we're running as like a 70 mile strip of road, flat as a pancake, and there's a canal running right next to the road, the whole 70 miles. And on the canal, is loaded with alligators. It's, Ever, it's the Everglades, Alligator Alley. So Piper's going nuts. We pass an alligator. Oh, my God. He's never seen a live alligator. They're laying on the bank. We see another one. Piper goes nuts. We see hundreds of them. Piper says, man, this is fucking great. Live alligator. I can't believe it. He said, man, I wish I had a gun. And Frank Dusick says, hey, I got a thirty-eight pistol in my bag. Trunk, uh, and I'm driving. Just stop, find your next alligator. So I pulled over. I say, and we open the trunk. Great news, it gets this old 38. Looks like a police special, snub nose. Looks like you can't hit a fight. Looks a little rusty for some reason. I recall. So Piper grabs uh, the gun. Now the alligator's on the other side of the canal, about 
maybe 60 feet, 80 feet across. The canal's wide, you know, not real wide, but like a, like the Erie Canal. But, you know, Florida alligators on the other side sunning. So Piper pulls, gets a gun, takes the aim at the alligator. I said, there ain't a chance in hell he's going to hit the alligator because the fucking gun looks like fucking from the 40s, 1940s. And it's a far shot. It'd be the lucky shot in the world if he hits it. So Piper takes aim, pulls the trigger, bam, shoots the gun, hits the alligator in the neck. The alligator starts fucking doing, goes into like a cardiac arrest. He starts, you know, shaking and shit. And he fucking rolls back in the water and he flips over. He's on his back, his belly shining in the sun. And Piper's so happy. We, nobody can believe he hit the alligator. So Piper says, oh my God, I got him, I got him. Now Piper starts stripping down. He takes his shirt off. He takes his shoes off. He takes his pants off. He's butt naked. He's just got his underwear on. So now, Piper says, I'm going to swim across that fucking canal and grab that alligator because I want to take him home. We want to skin him and do this and that. So Kevin Sullivan says, okay, I'll go down about uh, 50 yards and I'll make some, because there's a lot of alligators in the water. So Kevin says, I'm going to go over here and draw the other alligators that are alive towards me while the alligators come to me. I'm splashing the water. You swim out there and grab the alligator and then hurry back. So Kevin Sullivan goes down about 50 feet and starts splashing the water. And some of the alligators do go to fucking uh, Kevin Sullivan. So here goes Piper. He's in knee deep. He's in a fucking waist deep. He starts swimming. He's halfway across the pond to go fetch the alligator. He just shot who thinks he's dead. <laughs> so when he gets about 25 feet from him, the alligator flips back and starts swimming towards Piper. Oh, and it looks, now, you know a cartoon like the Road Runner where <laughs> the coyote's chasing him and he does that, that you know, like he's running in place yeah. and going 100 miles an hour. It looked like, it looked like a fucking cartoon. Piper fucking freaked out and start swimming as fast as he can. It looks like a fucking uh, cartoon. That was funniest fucking thing i ever seen. <laughs> so he gets out of the water, the alligator tries to get him, doesn't get him, we're all laughing and shit. Now you know, it's against the law to shoot an alligator. You better have a fucking permit and a good reason, because they can confiscate your car, <laughs> your house, really protect it. So as soon as Piper gets up, he's put on his pants, and a damn Florida, uh, uh, State fucking wildlife commission guy drives up. He's got the gun, the car. It looks like a police. Yeah. Hey, what do you guys do? Oh, Kevin Sullivan. Oh, Matty Piper. Now, if the guy didn't recognize us, and the alligator was already swam off with a bullet in his neck, but well, we would have got arrested if we would have had that fucking game in the mall that shit. But that's the Piper story. It's pretty cool. I've told it before. Kind of funny, but a lot of backstage stories like that, you know, which. Kind of humorous. Yeah, that's amazing. I never heard that one. We'll definitely have you on again. Let me ask you this. Where can fans find you on social media? Let's get you, you know, 15,000 followers. Let's get you at least 5,000 more tonight. Okay, that'd be great. Thank you so much. Um, Bill Fonzi Alfonso. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and uh, Twitter's at Alfonso Bill. But just punch in my name and it'll, it'll pull up something. And, and uh, I really appreciate the people who follow me. And I don't really try to sell a lot of shit. You know, there's a lot of guys. I'm going to use Francine as an example. And she should. She sells stuff because, you know what I mean? She's trying to make money. 
but I don't push stuff. I just tell stories and post pictures and uh, kind of keeps me relevant. But once in a while, I do sell a T-shirt. If I make, I, I made a manager of champions T-shirt with Van Dam, me and Sabu on it. I call Van Dam and say, "Hey, I came up with this idea about a T-shirt. Would you mind if I put your picture out of me, you and Sabu?" You know, Fonzie. Uh, no, it gives me the, so the shirt's RBD approved, and I don't have to split anything with them. But, you know, I'm not going to sell them like he does, but I sold 144 in three days, which was pretty cool and gross of them. But, uh, yeah, I'm on social media. Anybody wants to hit me up, uh, message me a question or something, I, I tend to answer them. Uh, may not be that same fucking minute, but I get around to them. I check the social media all the time. And it's fun for me. It keeps me relevant. And thank you, everybody, for uh, still keeping me in their minds and hearts and asking me all the questions. And have a good time with you guys. And the podcasts are great. Thank you again. Yeah, you are extremely welcome. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. I would, you know, I would say if you want to pass my information to anybody in your wrestling Rolodex that would want to come on the show, we'd be happy to have them. You said you might be interested in Raven. I talked to him quite a bit. Uh, so I will pass them. I'll say, hey, I did a podcast the other day, and your name came up. They would really love to have you. And they and I'll say, hey, they love you, and then he'll want to come on. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. You got to make, make it uh, interesting for them. Yeah, we had Scott Hudson on a few weeks ago, and, and Scott was talking about working with Raven way back in uh, GWF, Global Wrestling Federation. And, wow. uh, yeah, I mean, nothing, nothing but good things to say there. I mean, we've had on a ton of guys lately, Hector Guerrero, Tito Santana. Yep, all good names, all big names. Every one of those guys, you can hardly name any names in the past like that that I haven't worked with. Yeah, I mean, Terry Runnels came on, you know, Marlena told a story about yeah. Brock Lesnar uh, sexually harassing her. The next thing I know, we had over 250,000 hits for one episode. So she, I mean, that story got picked up everywhere, you know, over at least probably a thousand outlets. I mean, it was insane how many people picked that one up. That's a Me Too movement or whatever fucking crazy. I'm glad my name wasn't fucking mentioned. No, 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 no. <laughs> and it should be. I'm not like that. But, you know, like you can't even... Well, you know, I'd be a multimillionaire today if this would have happened. I'm okay. I got a house paid for my cars. I got money in the bank. I'm okay. I'm not bitter. I love the business. Business has been very good to me. But now Vince has got financial advisors, sexual harassment advisors, people who come in all the time and talk to us as a group, not me, but talk to the employees as a group. Now, if I would have had, in the 80s, financial advisors, you know, so self-employed, if I would have had financial advisors and people telling me how to, you know, I was just fucking 21 years old and putting 50 grand a year in my head. In the 80s, fuck, I didn't know how to handle that money. You know, I was living that $50,000 lifestyle. When I got to WCW, I was living a $100,000 lifestyle. I thought it would never end. And I should have fucking $18 million in the bank with investments, but I didn't because I didn't have. Now the guys are making that big money, and Vince's helping them prepare for the future, you know, tell them how to spend and financial advisors and all that. We didn't have that. So big difference back in the day. I don't know how that came up, but I just said, <laughs> but all good, all good. Yeah, no doubt about it. Well, Bill, thank you again, man. This was our pleasure. I'm going to talk to you real soon. This will post tonight, and I'll make sure I tag your uh, social media, and uh, we'll get it out there for you. Sound good? Thank you so much. 
thank you to your producers and stuff, and and I'm flattered again to be in the show. And how do you think it was? Okay. Yeah. And that was Bill Alfonso from ECW. Awesome interview there. Yeah, maybe we'll get Raven on the show. And uh, I, you know, I've had talked to Sabu uh, as well a few years ago. I haven't caught up with him in a while, but that'd be nice too. So we'll reach out to as many guys as we can. If you know of anybody who you think would be a good guest, let us know. Email me, coachvin14 at yahoo.com, and we'll get that person on the show to the best of our abilities. For Keon Sports, this has been Vince McKee.